All right. Good evening. All right. Some of you found your way back after spring break. Some of you might still be there. How's everyone doing? Good. All right. Got a got a tub up here. Got a wall that's being built, which is good and thematic for tonight's topic. All right. So we are cruising along um, in Journey 180. Um, before we get started, a um, couple things. Um, number one, we are um, we are back. We're excited. Uh, Kaboom's um, raring and all that kind of stuff. So make sure you bring um, friends out there. We are um, going to be catching up on the videos that are online. So I know some of you have been waiting there. And for those of you who are listening online, we want to thank you. We understand that a lot of military throughout the world are actually listening um, to the Mind podcast. So we want to, number one, thank you for your service and thank you for listening up. And so tonight we are going to be ending... Um, the first part, the first major part of Journey 180. We are going to be finished with the Old Testament tonight. Um, as we've talked about before, we are maneuvering through time. We started, obviously, in the beginning. Um, and then we started catching up with real time. Um, we got about 2,500, actually about anywhere between 3,000 and 2,500. We get the story of Noah coming in. We say that big gap because they lived 900-some years. Um, so about nine or about 2,500 BC is about when the flood happened. About 2000s when Abraham um, was on the scene, and a lot of these again, these are just signposts. So give or take them about uh, 50 to 100 years. Um, about 1500 is the Exodus, um, where Mo- obviously Moses is involved in that. Um, a thousand we get to um, David. 500 we get to Daniel, and then right around. One, we get to Jesus comes on the scene. So we are, we are excited for, um, what's that, what's happening? Oh, do I, am I, am I just backing up? All right. Let me, let me move into the light. I think that's wisdom too. All right. So, so tonight we're going to be hitting, um, the exile, the very end of that, and then the return. Um, if you were with us on Sunday morning, um, you know that, um, or actually even, um, last couple Sundays, you know that um, um, Judah has been taken captive. Judah has been taken captive over into Babylon. Babylon um, is the first of a series of world empires that's mentioned in Daniel. We've been talking a lot about Daniel, not only the historical piece of Daniel, but we've also talked about the prophetic piece of Daniel. Um, Daniel was sort of one of those dual books. It was a, a prophetic book. But it was also a strong history book. It gave us a good history of what was happening in Babylon um, during that time. Right after we um, finish with um, Daniel, we move on into the return. Now, Sunday mornings, we've been talking about Nehemiah and the whole idea of of what it means to build and all that kind of stuff. So we're going to be hitting that tonight. And then that'll take us up to about 350, 360 BC, and then that's when the Bible goes silent, okay, from the end of Malachi all the way until we get to the New Testament, right up when John the Baptist starts proclaiming that the king has come. Um, we have about 350 years, maybe up to 400 years of silence. Now, this next Sunday morning, just a little advertisement, if, for those of you who don't go on Sunday mornings to Journey 180, um, This, if you were going to choose any Sunday in the world to go, this would be the one. Because we're going to talk about something called uh, Between the Testaments. And we're really going to walk through the historical pieces that happened between Malachi and Matthew. 
between Malachi, the last prophet of the Old Testament, and John the Baptist, the first of the New Testament. Because if you look at where the Old Testament is, and you look, um, even what we're going to talk about tonight, and you look at John, or you look at Malachi, you'll notice a lot of things are different than what we see in the Gospels. It seems like almost a whole different Jewish world. And so you don't see any reference to the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Essenes. You don't see any reference really to synagogues. Synagogues just barely get on the map in the Old Testament. Um, there is an entirely different landscape politically that Jesus walks into. There's an entirely different culture that Jesus walks into. And there's an entire, entirely different language that Jesus walks into. All that we're going to discuss on Sunday because that all happens in this silent period as God is basically setting up the dominoes um, for what would happen. And if what happened in the in the in between time didn't happen, then it would have been incredibly hard for the gospel to have been spread so quickly. And so we're going to talk about that Sunday morning. But before we get going tonight, um, one thing: How many of you have seen the movie Noah? Anybody out there? Raise your hand high. I can't really see it. Okay. How many have not seen Noah, but plan to see Noah in the theaters? Okay. So I won't bust any plots for you, but I knew that um, there would be a lot of questions about Noah. I've been getting a lot of Facebook and, and email questions about Noah saying, ah, this looks a little weird. Um, are there, is this really biblical? And so without ruining the plot, First thing I'll say about the movie, no, I went last night, because I knew I'd be talking tonight, so I went last night at 1020, um, it's a two and a half hour movie, uh, went last night at 1020, me and about five other people in the theater, there was no one, there was more humans on the ark than there were in the theater with me last night, or at least there were supposed to be more humans in the, uh, in the ark, so the movie, Noah. let me first say this, it is a well done movie, the acting in it is incredible. The sights are incredible. There are many scenes within the scope of Noah that you can go, wow, that, and you can really put yourself um, into the moment and really try to get into Noah's sandals and see what it would have been like to live in that time, um, to experience sitting in the ark as the waters hit and as people are screaming on the outside. So there's a lot of valuable things there. Um, the movie was written by an atheist, so the, obviously, he doesn't really care too much about being too close um, to his to um, true history. So I'll say that the the movie Noah definitely diverts from biblical history in in many different areas, in quite a bit of different areas. So if you go see, go to see it, uh, pretend you're going to see Thor, okay, and, and just just enjoy the movie. And, and for what it's worth, if you had never heard the biblical account of the flood, that's in Genesis six through nine. You probably would have sat through the movie and went, wow, that was pretty cool. That was a cool story. There's a little twist. There's a little drama in there. Um, the acting was, was actually, I thought was really good. Um, so, but there are some, some, some def, definite difficulties, but I don't want to ruin the plot for those of you who are going to see it. Um, so, but we'll talk. Um, so here, here's my warning. Those who are going to go see it in the theater, do it this week because I'm going to bust the plot up next week. Okay. All right. All right, so let's go. If you have your Bibles, turn. Um, and it's right after Second Chronicles. We're going to get to the book of Ezra.
Now we mentioned that the Old Testament, there's historic books, there's poetry or there's poetry books, Psalms and, and Proverbs and, and stuff like that. And then there's the prophets and the prophets are split into two. There's the major prophets and the minor prophets. The major prophets are the ones that wrote the big books. The minor prophets are the ones that wrote the smaller books. Um, doesn't, doesn't mean there are any greater prophets at all. After Second Chronicles, we also mentioned that First and Second Chronicles, basically as a unit, Chronicles is the same as going from First, Second Samuel, First and Second Kings. It's pretty much the same, same grouping there. Right after Second Chronicles, Ezra picks up, and Ezra continues the history. Ezra continues the history. So Ezra is is historic. It talks about the return from captivity. Remember, um, Judah currently is in captivity. Israel is gone. Okay, Israel, the ten tribes of Israel are gone. They've been assimilated into um, um, Assyrian society, and they've also been dispersed throughout um, throughout the world. Um, we see that. We talked about Sunday, Ezekiel 37, the, the whole um, prophecy of the Valley of Dry Bones, and we see how at some point in history, Israel... And Judah are going to come back together. And, and so we, we see that in prophecy. But at this moment, Judah is the only remnant left. So most of Judah, about 95% of Judah, is in captivity in Babylon, which is modern-day Baghdad. There is a small amount of Jewish population that was left back to basically tend the farms, take care of the, take care of the land. But for the most part, everybody is in Babylon. Then we get, and hopefully you guys, I know I was late getting here, but hopefully you guys got one of these. So if you didn't, they're on the back table. We've got four different accounts that happen that give us a history of the return from captivity into the land, back into Jerusalem. Ezra, chapters 1 through 6, deal with the account of Zerubbabel. Everybody says Zerubbabel. Friend of mine, former pastor here at Cornerstone, one of the original founders, thought it would be wise to put as the password for the, for the church's alarm system, Zerubbabel. I was a youth pastor. And as youth pastors do, I set the alarm off. Guy calls me. He's all, what's your password? Zerubbabel. He's all, can you spell that? It's <laughs> like, no. He's all, what's your password, sir? I'm all, it's Zerubbabel. <laughs> He's all, can you please spell that? <laughs> Z, E, can you use it in a sentence? I, I was like, totally. So the police ended up coming. Um, so don't ever use Zerubbabel as your password. Um, but Zerubbabel, it's the account of Zerubbabel. Ezra chapters 1 through 6 deal with him. Right now, Babylon is done. We see that there's a break in Daniel where Daniel goes, he's dealing with Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians. And then all of a sudden it flips and he starts to deal with the Medes and then the Persians. Okay, And so at this point in, in world history and in Jewish history, they are dealing primarily with Persian kings now. So Persia is now the great world empire. 
Okay, so this is the second great world empire that Daniel prophesied about in, in Daniel chapter 2. So Persia is now, is now the, is the, now the main um, empire. The Persian kings, the one that Zerubbabel dealt with, two of them actually. One was Cyrus the Great. He was the one that allowed the Jews to return to the land. And then Darius the Great, and this is not to be confused with Darius the Mede in Daniel. These are two different Dariuses. Okay? Darius the Great, and he allowed them to finish the temple. Okay, so Zerubbabel, his main problem obviously was getting the temple rebuilt. So Ezra 1 through 6 really deals with getting the temple rebuilt. Remember the temple um, had been absolutely sacked and destroyed. And of course the temple is the central piece of Jewish society. This is, this is where they go and worship God. And this was incredibly important to get this temple rebuilt. Now, as we talk next or this Sunday about the intertestamental times, we'll notice that one thing that picks up that really was absent from most of Old Testament history is the idea of a synagogue. Now, a synagogue is different than a temple. Any city, any town, any village where seven Jewish men are present, they would have built a a synagogue. And so synagogues appeared all over the place throughout Babylon and throughout Persia. Okay, because they did not have a temple to go to, they each within their own context went to synagogues. When the Jews returned to Jerusalem, yes, they went and built the temple, but they also brought the idea of the synagogue with them. And so that's why when you see Jesus come on the scene, there's not only the temple, but there's synagogues located throughout Galilee and Nazareth and all these different places. That was non-existent in the Old Testament, so that's where that came from. So Ezra chapters 1 through 6 deals with basically Zerubbabel and their return. Then, right in the middle of Ezra, if you turn to Ezra chapter 6, and you can even put a little line there for those of you who like to mark up your Bibles. For those of you who don't like to mark up your Bibles, just stare at it for a second. But between chapters 6 and 7 is a split. And right between chapter 6 and 7, we have the account of Esther, which is written in the book of Esther. So the entire area of Esther happens within this split. The main story of of Esther deals with um, Asherus, or more commonly known as Xerxes, the king. Esther, the queen, Mordecai, and the wicked Haman, um, the enemy. The Persian king, Xerxes. Um, The main problem that that book is dealing with is the eradication of the Jews. Okay, Haman was trying to kill, get rid of all the Jews. He was the original Hitler. Okay, he wanted to get rid of them all. Okay, and so that's the story of Esther. As Esther is in the, the right place at the right time, Again, Esther is much like Joseph and much like Daniel. Two people that were in the right place, or three people that were in the right place at the right time. God put them in a specific point in the government to affect change. Okay? So that happens between chapter 6 and 7 of Ezra. And then starting in chapter 7 of Ezra, through the end of the book, we have the third, or the, the third main story. And this is the second sending of Jews back 
to Jerusalem. There's about an 80-year gap. Okay, So the first set went with Zerubbabel. The next set of Jews went down with Ezra. The first set was about 50,000. Okay, so 50,000 Jews went on the first with Zerubbabel. The second set was much smaller, much, much smaller. And by the way, 50,000 seems big. I mean, that would fill up, um, um, what do you call it now, Chase? Not the Bob anymore, the Chase, Chase Field. Um, so that would fill up Chase, but that, that is minuscule compared to what came out of Egypt. Okay, so this is a smaller group. In fact, the majority of the Jews decided not to go. They were actually comfortable in Babylon. They were at, or not Babylon. They were actually comfortable in Persia. Okay, keep in mind it's it's been quite a while since they since they left. They got accustomed to Persia. They had businesses. They had new friends. Um, they had their synagogues, and so for most of the Jews, they actually stayed um, in Persia. But there were definitely um, fifty thousand that went with Zerubbabel, and then the second run was much less, just a couple thousand that went down with Ezra. Ezra dealt with Art, Artaxerxes. This is, the one, this is the king that followed Xerxes. The main thrust of the last part of Ezra is the intermingling of marriages. And then finally, we get to the account of Nehemiah, which we're talking about on Sunday mornings. The main characters of that are Nehemiah and Ezra. The Persian king there is also Artaxerxes. Um, the main problem for this group is getting the city wall built. So in, in, in ancient times, cities were great, and, and obviously temples were, the, were the, the centerpiece of the Jewish civilization, but they really meant nothing if you didn't have a wall to protect them. All cities back then had walls to protect them. And so, yes, the temple was eventually built and completed, but there was still a nagging on the heart saying, the walls are not being completed. We're vulnerable. We need to get these walls built and placed. So all four of these accounts in three books flow together. So you got Ezra 1 through 6, then stop reading there, go to Esther, read Esther, then go back, finish Ezra, and then go and read Nehemiah. And then you'll get the entire flow of what's happening um, to the Jews as they return back to Jerusalem. Some of the prophets that are, are dealing in this area, um, Zechariah, um, Haggai, um, those are some other prophets you can read during this time. But the idea, again, is these foreign kings, Persian kings, now remember, Persia is a violent society. How many have ever seen the movie 300? Okay, that's the Persians. That's who the Spartans were fighting against. And by the way, that, that tall guy, even though he's probably not that tall, that tall guy that Leonidas is fighting against, you know, the 300 against the massive Persian army and all their elephants, that tall guy was Xerxes. That's Esther's husband. Okay, so the Battle of Thermopylae that you see in the movie 300 happens in 480. The story of Esther also happens at that same time. So up in, up in Greece, or actually a little further east, you have the Battle of Thermopylae, and then you have down here, you have the whole story of, of Esther happening. So let's turn to Esther real quick, and we'll really lock in on that story.
All right, so Esther chapter 1, we'll just, we'll just start reading. This is what happened during the time of Xerxes. The Xerxes who ruled over 127 provinces stretching from India to Kush. Okay, Kush is in Africa. Um, so this is a, India is, is a massive empire, or not India, Persia is a massive empire at that time. One of the biggest empires of the world, as far as geographically, the world had, had known up to that point. So Persia is rather big. At that time, King Xerxes reigned from the royal throne in the citadel of Susa. Okay, so Susa is over in modern-day Iran, just to the east of Baghdad. And the third year of his reign, he gave a banquet for all his nobles and officials, the military leaders of Persia and Media, the princes, the nobles of the provinces were present. For a full 180 days, he displayed the vast wealth of his kingdom and the splendor and glory of his majesty. When these days were over, the king gave a banquet lasting seven days in the enclosed garden of the king's palace for all the people from the east or, or from the least to the greatest who were in the citadel of Susa. The garden had hangings of white and blue linen fastened with cords of white linen and purple material to, to silver rings on marble pillars. There were couches of gold, which had to have been comfortable, and silver on a mosaic pavement of whatever that is, marble, mother of pearl, and other costly stones. Wine was served in goblets of gold, each one different from the other, and the royal wine was abundant in keeping with the king's um, liberality. By the king's command, each guest was allowed to drink with no restrictions, for the king instructed all the wine stewards to serve each man what he had wished. Okay, so you can sort of see the, the setting up of this party, this great banquet. You, you see described the riches of riches at that time. You got purple and gold and silver and all these vast, wealthy, beautiful things, and they are just having the time of their life. There is no tap. There, the beer is running. The wine is running. Everything is running. Everybody is having a blast. And then we enter a central character. Verse 9. Queen Vashti also gave a banquet for the women in the royal palace of King Xerxes. On the seventh day, when King Xerxes was high in spirits from wine, he commanded the seven eunuchs who served him. And there's their names. To bring before him Queen Vashti, wearing her royal crown, in order to display her beauty to the people and nobles. For she was lovely to look at. But when the attendants delivered the king's command, Queen Vashti refused to come. Then the king became furious and burned with anger. Since it was customary for the king to consult experts in the matter of the law and justice, he spoke with the wise men who understood the times. And we're closest to the king. There those guys are, the seven nobles of Persia and Media, who had special access to the king and were highest in the kingdom. According to the law, what must be done with Queen Vashti? He asked. She has not obeyed the command of King Xerxes that the eunuchs have taken to her. Then Mimukin um, replied, in the presence of the king and the nobles, Queen Vashti has done wrong, not only against the king, but against all the nobles and the peoples of all the provinces of King Xerxes. For the queen's conduct will become known 
to all the women, and so they will despise their husbands and say, King Xerxes commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, but she would not come. This very day, the Persian and Median women of nobility whom have heard about the queen's conduct will respond to all the king's nobles in the same way. There will be no end of disrespect and discord. Therefore, if it pleases the king, let him issue a royal decree and let it be written in the laws of Persia and Media, which cannot be repealed, that Vashti is never again to enter the presence of King Xerxes. Also, let the king give her royal position to someone else who is better than she. Then when the king's edict is proclaimed throughout all his vast realm, all the women will respect their husbands from the least to the greatest. The king and his nobles were pleased with this advice, Keep in mind, they were high in spirit. Um, so the king did as Mimukin or proposed. He sent dispatches to all parts of the kingdom, to each province in his own script, and to each people in their own language, proclaiming that every man should be ruler over his own household using his native tongue. All right, so that's, that's a crazy moment in history. All right, so we've got um, King Xerxes... Back home, now keep in mind, King Xerxes was more known to be a warrior king, so more often than not, he was not home. He was out battling Spartans and battling other people. Um, but he was back home at this time. He threw a big feast, 180-day celebration, ending with a seven-day banquet. At the very end, while everybody was, we'll just say it, they were drunk, plastered, they invited, he invited his wife, the queen, Queen Vashti, to come in and display her beauty. Now, what is missing here is most likely this wasn't, hey, come in and show us the new royal gown and everybody let everybody see the new dance that you've been working on and all that. Most likely, now we won't be dogmatic about this, but most likely, and according to Jewish tradition, Queen Vashti was asked basically to come in front of the whole banquet wearing nothing but a crown. Okay? She refused. Said absolutely not. That I'm not going to do that. Now again, that's we can't be dogmatic on that, but whatever it was, Queen Vashti said, absolutely not. I'm not going. This is ridiculous. That infuriated the king, okay? And he listened to his advisors, which you'll, you'll notice a similarity again between, between the Pharaoh and the Babylonian kings. and the, they, they all have their advisors, and their advisors always lead them astray. And then God rises up someone to talk sense into this king, most of us know, know the story, but the, the story does go on that there is, a, there is a call out to be the next queen, basically. Esther, let's look at Esther. Now, here is, here is a woman who, if anybody could ever complain about their situation at the time, here is Esther. Esther lived during a time that her country had been captured by Babylonians and later the, the Persians. So Esther was a Jewish Jewish woman who was in captivity. Okay, so she was the lowest of the low in a foreign land. All of Esther's immediate family died and she became an orphan. Mordecai, her godly cousin, raised her as his own daughter. Okay, so not only was she in a foreign land, she was a minority. She was looked down upon. She had no family aside from a relative who raised her. Third thing going against her, she was a woman. In that day and age, women were not looked upon with much respect. And this would continue on for a long time. Even in Jesus' time, 
women's testimony meant absolutely nothing. Meant absolutely nothing. Esther is a single person. She has no husband to take care of her. The queen has just aggravated the currently low standard of women's rights by disobeying the king and later caught and later caused more issues with Esther. So here, here is Esther, lowest of the low. She's a woman. She's lower than second class. She's living in a time outside of her, outside of her country. She has no family. And now the political and social climate has just become incredibly bad for her. How many of you, and I'll raise my hand too, how many have ever looked at your life and went, man, I've got a lot of things against me. There are a lot, be honest, I, I, I for sure have gone and looked and went, man, if only I had a dad. If only I, I, I knew a dad, maybe I would understand how to hold a tool. Uh, maybe I would understand how to fix a car. Maybe I'd understand this. And, and you can go through all these, man, I, I can tell you for about 10 years of my life, I hated the fact that I had these things. Going up in high school, back in, or high school, or going through school in the 70s and mostly the 80s, okay? I actually graduated in 90. Um, these things drove me nuts. They helped me to see, but they also helped me to be made fun of. How many wore glasses when you were young? How many were called four eyes at one point in your life? <laughs> That's awesome, isn't it? Uh, in fact, I remember there were times that I would just break my glasses. Just break them. Yeah, because I could. And they were plastic and ugly. I remember my entire senior, junior and senior year, I didn't even wear them at school. I played my entire tennis career without glasses. That's a little ball coming at you. I hated them. And so... Major things like not not having a dad or, or little things like this. I, I remember growing up going, man, I, I wish I had some kind of advantage. And I think Esther is definitely the type of person that could definitely have used the disadvantages. She could have been depressed. She could have gone through life going, well, I can't do anything. God could never use me. And I see this over and over again when I worked in youth ministry. So many students... Oh, God can't use me. My family life's jacked up. I'm not popular in school. I'm not, I'm not really that smart. I, I, I don't get things. And, and over and over again, counseling with youth, just hearing all these things about, man, I'm just, I'm not living up to the standard. And I think the book of Esther is a story for those people. I think the book of Esther is a powerful story for those people. Now, the book of Esther is a controversial book. Another thing we'll talk about this Sunday is why certain books are in the Bible and why certain books are not in the Bible. Again, this would be a pretty good Sunday to be at. And Esther was one of those books that, for years, they fought. People said, this this book should not be in the Bible. Do you realize in the entire book of Esther... God is not mentioned once. 
And people went, how can that be in the Bible? But yet throughout the book, you see God's divine hand through the life of Esther over a foreign kingdom. The other story you see, even though the name Satan or devil is not mentioned in the book of Esther either, you see that hand moving through. It's a powerful story. And it's a series of bad and discouraging incidents that happen to Esther. But what I used to tell the youth a lot and what I finally realized in my life is sometimes you need to look at the bad things and go, man, maybe these are good things. Maybe these things that I think are bad, maybe these things that that, that bring tears to my life are actually good things. And it took a while for me in my life to realize that, man, maybe I'm glad. Maybe I'm glad things worked out for me the way they did. Let's think about that. If Queen Vashti did not displease the king, there would have been no need for another queen. There would have been no one in power to stand for the Jews. If Esther happened to be a man, then she, of course, cannot qualify for the the Persian beauty contest. If she was not an orphan, Mordecai would never have adopted her as his daughter. If Esther had been married, again, she would not have become queen. And if Esther hadn't been a minority, she probably wouldn't have cared about the plight of the Jews. God placed a young woman in the perfect place at the perfect time for a time just as this. What I love about Esther is while the rest of the Jews, while while the Jews are now starting their plight back from Persia, going over the Fertile Crescent, if you guys can get the picture of of the Middle East in your mind, you go from modern-day Iran, you have to go over what's called the Fertile Crescent. It's where civilizations were built because there's river and, and life. If you go straight across, you have a desert. Okay, So they would go over this fertile crescent. That would be the major travel plans. And they would eventually end back down in in Jerusalem. And so as 50,000 Jewish people are moving over the fertile crescent, actually for you, over the fertile crescent, here's a much larger group of Jews that has decided to stay and was actually a bad move because all of a sudden the political climate changed And they were going to be hunted down and absolutely taken care of. Absolutely wiped out. But God had a young woman, an orphan, in the right place at the right time. And we see, as you read through Esther, how she ends up becoming the queen. But even after becoming the queen, she still has to make incredible faith steps. Because being the queen doesn't necessarily give you any power. Ask Vashti. She had to make in serious faith steps to even get an audience with Xerxes. To even be able to expose the evil of Haman. And Haman was evil. He was, he was a modern, he was a, a, not a modern day, he was an ancient Hitler. He was an ancient devil. In fact, 
people still read, Jewish people still read the story of Esther. And whenever Haman's name is about to be read, everybody who's in the audience has to go, and just make sounds so you can't even hear the word Haman. They hated him that much. Okay? He was hated. And by the way, Haman, why did he want to kill the Jews? He was a Malachite. If you remember from our study, all the way back in Genesis, all the way back in Exodus, all the way back in 1 Samuel, over and over and over and over again, God told Israel, take care of the Amalekites. And a lot of times we go, ooh, that, that, that's horrible. How, how can God order such a command? How can God order such a command to eradicate an entire group of people? But yet we see what happened when the Jews disobeyed. And now, here we go again, the Amalekites are getting ready to try to kill all the Jews. We see how Haman's plan is finally exposed and how the Jews are saved. You need to understand, if there is no Esther... There is no Nehemiah. If Esther doesn't take her stand between chapters 6 and 7 of Ezra, 7 through 10 is not going to happen. Nehemiah is not going to happen. Esther is a key cog in the history of the bloodline of Christ. She is a key cog in the history of the Jewish nation. Her momentary stand... To say, will I go in front of the king? Will I not? Will I go in? Her decision to step, like so many others in the history of the world, to take that step of faith, to step out of the boat, to become that mustard seed of faith, her step and God's plan in her life ushers in a whole nother effect. We talked about setting up dominoes. You know what happens when you remove a couple dominoes? Everything else stays standing. I love that about God's plan because he uses the most ordinary people to do extraordinary things. The most natural of situations to do something supernatural. Esther is yet another person in the line of Rahab and all these other just ordinary people that did extraordinary things. And by faith, God enabled amazing things to happen. There are moments in everybody's life, everybody's sitting in here, and I know you've heard this a lot, everybody sitting in a purple chair in here has a plan. Has a future that God has ordained for you. There's a wall in your life, there's a wall in your community that needs to go up. God has a plan. And if you're sitting in here like so many of my youth groupers in the past, like I was in the past saying, man, I'm not worthy. No one's ever going to follow me. I'm a complete nerd. No one's ever going to listen to me. I could never. I I remember sitting there and and teachers teachers looking at me going, your writing is horrible. Your writing, and and that that still happens today. My, My wife has to edit almost everything I do. Not almost everything I do. Okay? I'm getting better, right? Okay? 
But I have a horrible grasp of English. And I remember sitting in classroom after classroom getting F's because I couldn't understand it. And the other half, honestly, I was just lazy. Um, And I remember certain teachers going, eh, you probably shouldn't be this. (laughs) You probably should never be a speaker. You probably shouldn't. When we listen to the world, we become defeated. The story of Esther, the the story of the Bible, you see people over and over and over again, by faith, realizing that God must become greater, they must become less. By faith, they do extraordinary things because they believe in the one true God, and they believe he is omnipotent, omniscient, that he has a plan for them. No matter what they've done in their past, he calls us to look in the front window, not the rearview mirror. And so, as I was looking at this today, I was like, man, what if, what, what, what if people at the mine, each purple chair, would take a stand and, and do something extraordinary? And I'm not just adding on to Sunday's message. Yes, that's going to be an amazing thing, and we do need that. But I'm also talking about the other six days of the week. What are you doing at your, at your job with your employer and employees? What are you doing at your school with your teachers or your students? What are you doing in your family? What are you doing in your neighborhood? How are you, by faith, living out God's plan for you? Because you might be a hinge point. You might not be a hinge point for an entire nation like Esther was, but you can be a hinge point for an entire family, an entire community, an entire neighborhood. Last Tuesday night, we didn't have the mind because in this room were about 500 leaders from all over the United States. We were doing a Vision Arizona, or we were doing a Ignite conference, which is part of the, our, our church, Cornerstone's DNA. We have a DNA to plant other churches. And so we host a church planning conference for the nation to come in, and we bring speakers, and it, it's, it's an amazing opportunity to really just ignite people in going out and doing something. Well, this year we did something for the first time. We've, we've never done this before. We sat down about six months ago, and, and Lynn said, you know what? What if we told all these leaders, all these pastors, and all these worship leaders, and all these ministers, to pick out one, two, maybe three students, junior in high school, all the way up to maybe 29 years of age, and pay their way to come to the conference? And for the first time this year, last week, we hosted in the student center an entire youth wing of the Ignite Conference. And the whole message over, the, over that one day was, what would happen if instead of selling all your talents, all your, your gifting, all your educational background to, to the secular world, and there's nothing bad about that. If you're going to work for Intel, do it at the best of your capabilities. But what... If you have a Samuel moment, and maybe God's calling you. And the whole idea last week was to look, and about 120 came from all over the United States. It was great to see see this. What if you said, here I am, God. Maybe God can use you to be a hinge point. 49 Students stood up and said, you know what? I'm going to put my 
goals on pause for a little while, and I'm going to see what God has in store for me. 49 future leaders said, you know what, I think I'm going to give going into ministry a shot. What? Yeah, it's huge. It's huge. Just imagine what one leader, what can come out of that ministry. Imagine what, maybe a Billy Graham's in there. Not to make his head big, but maybe a Lynn Winters is in there. Okay, Who knows what came out of that decision, but what if? And so my call to you is, well, what what if you, sitting in this room, are at a hinge point? And like throughout the Bible, like Esther, like Joseph, like Daniel, like all these greats we've talked about, like David, remember David? What if he didn't bring the cheese? (laughs) There's no divine moment with Goliath. What if he turned to his dad and said, I'm the anointed king. Get someone else to take this to the brothers. David did the cheesy job and God put him in the exact position he needed to be in. What is it for you? Church of Antioch. What if they didn't set aside Paul and Barnabas? Where would the church of Ephesus, Corinth, where, what would happen? And so as we look at the final piece of the Old Testament, and we, and we see the return, and we see the final setting up for the Messiah to come in. As we look at the final pieces of the Old Testament, here's what I'm going to say. The world is now ready spiritually, or now ready as far as the Bible's concerned, for the Messiah to come. There's going to be some years of silence so some political things can happen. Some, some things can be set up. But there is after Malachi, here comes the first coming. Here comes Jesus. And all those prophecies from Isaiah to Zechariah uh, to Joel, Micah, all these great, Jeremiah, all, all these prophets that have been pointing towards the cross. All those sacrifices from the, mo- from the moment that, that Noah stepped off the ark. All those promises go back before Noah. The very promise in, in Genesis 3, it's about to happen. It's about to happen. And we have now followed a thread from the beginning of time, the moment that man decided to act independently of God's plan for his life. There's this thread that has been woven throughout history. And it crosses Abraham. And then chapter 12, we, we, we follow this thread. We see as it goes down... And we, we see Isaac and Jacob. We see Joseph going down into Egypt. We see how God takes a family, puts him in an incubator, and out comes a nation. We see God raising uh, another man, Moses, to lead his people out. We see this nation, not a family anymore, this nation of Israel, these 12 tribes of Israel going through a boot camp, a 40-year boot camp, preparing themselves for the future Messiah. Everything is pointed to a future cross. Granted, the cross crucifixion hadn't been invented yet, but everything is pointing towards the Messiah, the Christ. We watch as they go into the promised land. We watch as, as, as they go through this cycle of sin where they're following God and then they turn away, much like Adam did, and start following self. They start worshiping other gods. They end up becoming enslaved. They call out to God. God raises a judge, 
A judge saves them. Everything's happy. And then it happens again and again and again. And it happens throughout judges. We see that they finally are tired of this and they call for a king. Saul comes about. Saul, a bad king, not a great king. Then God brings up David. David starts out a man after God's own heart. And this thread keeps going. And through this thread, we have people, ordinary people, and in some cases, bad people, murderers, rapists, adulterers, prostitutes. But this thread keeps moving. We see from David, as David starts out good, ends up going, man, not so great. Then we got Solomon. He asks for wisdom. God grants him. And for one time in history, a, a man is able to see things the way God sees them. And then we see even the wisest man has kids that absolutely go bonkers. And from that point on, we see a division. And this thread keeps going on as we have Israel and we have Judah. We have prophets to Israel. We have prophets to Judah. Then Israel, because of their sin, is taken away by Assyria. Then we have Judah. Then Judah, because of their sin, is taken captive by Babylon. But the thread keeps going. And throughout this thread, God raises up man, raises up women to stand in the gap. We see the thread keep going and then we get to Ezra and Esther and Nehemiah as they return back. We see the temple built. We see the wall finally completed. And now we are ready. We see the last words of Malachi and then the Bible goes silent. But we need to understand the Bible goes silent, but the thread doesn't get cut. The thread keeps going. And then we get to the most important moment in all of history. What we used to date things by. The word became flesh and dwelt among men. That word is Jesus Christ. He wasn't just born then. Jesus was there at the very beginning. And the beauty, something that I didn't realize until probably 15 years ago. Jesus was not only there in the beginning. He was the one threading. He was there at every moment in the Old Testament. Every moment. Jesus is threading the plan leading up to himself. It was him next to Gideon. It was him talking to Moses. It was him in the fire over and over again. Jesus threading the plan. And then we have the crucifixion. The word became flesh, dwelt among men. Men rejected him. God had a plan. Not a plan that Israel was waiting for. They were expecting a totally different system to come about. Expecting a totally different Messiah. A totally different political structure. They wanted white horse, not donkey. They wanted an immediate change. And from that moment on, can I tell you the thread still keeps going? And now we, even today, are still looking at the cross. Just like Noah looked at the cross, we're looking at the cross. Just like Moses pointed to the cross, we're pointing to the cross. Today, 2014, Cornerstone still has moments, still has hinge moments, still has moments where we need Esther's and Rahab's, we need Daniel's and David's, we need Joseph's to take a stand and make a mark for the kingdom. 
The battle's already won. Now we just have to tell people about it. So my encouragement to you, Sunday would be a great moment to, to, to come and look at what happened in the middle. We'll talk about the Bible, why certain books. We're going to look at Maccabees. We're going to look at the revolt. We're going to look at the things that set up. We're going to talk about Alexander the Great. And then next Tuesday, we start the New Testament. And we get into the Gospels. And we get into the greatest story ever told. And so I want to encourage you to keep coming, keep studying, keep reading your Bible as we continue to talk about what the entire book, the holy book, the Bible, is about. And that is the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's what it's about. And the Bible is true. It's wonderful. And I love and I thank you guys for coming. And I thank you for those who love to study the Bible. It makes it easy to sit through a movie like Noah and go, nope, 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 nope. The FBI would tell you the way they train their agents to find counterfeit dollars. They don't show them counterfeit dollars. They tell them to study the real currency. If you know the real currency, you'll see counterfeit immediately. And so that's the whole idea of Journey 180, to know our currency, to know what we believe, why we believe it. Because then when you see other things, when you have those conversations at the door, when you have those conversations at Starbucks, when you sit in the movie theater eating popcorn, snickering, you know it. So we will close tonight. We'll ask some questions. You can talk about no if you want. I can't bust the plot, sorry. So let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the opportunity to be here tonight. Heavenly Father, we thank you. Um, we thank you for your scripture. We thank you for the, the 39 books of the Old Testament. We thank you for that thread that we get to watch, your redemptive plan for humanity. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you love us so much to give us a second chance at a relationship with the creator of the universe. Heavenly Father, I pray for us now here at Cornerstone or whatever church is represented in this room. Heavenly Father, I pray that you will give us wisdom to see things the way you see them to act the way you would want us to act, to live that life worthy of the call, to maybe be that man or that woman that stands in the gap, that is a hinge point, that steps out of the boat, that, that has faith, and by faith, you can use us. Heavenly Father, I do pray for Cornerstone specifically. We're in a season right now where we have an opportunity to make significant moves for the kingdom not for our kingdom, but for your kingdom. Heavenly Father, any time we make a move in the history of this church, in the history of your church, any time moves are being made, the opposition steps up. Heavenly Father, I pray for protection. I pray for Pastor Lynn. Give him protection. Give him wisdom. I pray for the staff. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the mind. We thank you for those um, who are here. We thank you for those who are listening overseas. And again, I, I, Heavenly Father, bless those military um, soldiers that are overseas and are listening to this. And, and I just pray that you bless their heart, give them perseverance and strength, and let them know that we absolutely adore and appreciate their sacrifice so we can be doing this very thing tonight. Heavenly Father, be with us this week. Um, guide us. It's in your precious name we pray. Amen. All right. Any questions? Any, any questions? Obviously, Journey 180, we've got to run through it real quick, but... Anything? Any Noah movie questions? Nothing?
Can I, can I say one thing about the Noah movie? Okay. Oh, yes, I, I will. I'll, I'll Nike all over that. Okay. Yes, all the way over there. I'm a teacher, so I'm really... Oh, goodness anyway. <laughs> gracious. Yes, thank you. The 18th. I'm assuming that's the Good Friday? Yes. Yes. Here's... I, I, I was supposed to announce that right off the bat. Here's what's happening. There are... We're doing a lot of maneuvering here, and so we don't have the opportunity to do the Last Supper walkthrough the way we were thinking. But what we are going to do is we are going to do it in a way that we can participate at home. So what we're going to do over the next several... Or over the next several weeks is we're going to... Um, get volunteers. We can't do it tonight, but starting next week, we're going to get volunteers that would like to open their house up and host a Last Supper walkthrough, and we will be able to give the whole run-through. We'll walk through exactly what happens on that night, um, and we'll be able to do through the... So we'll do everything, but we can't do it corporately. We've got to do it out in the homes, which maybe is going to be a better option anyway. So that's what will be happening there. So thank you. I totally spaced that. All right, here's one thing I'm going to say about Noah, and I just want to caution people on this. As, as Christians, we have a tendency to jump on people when things aren't correct. And, and so I've, I've been seeing a lot of Facebooks like, oh, this is, this is outrageous. And it is. The, the, the movie is definitely not a biblical movie by any stretch of the imagination. Um, it, it is a story. It, it is a story that is loosely based on um, Noah. Okay, and so, but here's what I will say: an atheist found it found it that he would do a story on Noah. Kudos to him. Okay, so an atheist put out a movie about Noah. Noah gives you an, an amazing opportunity, an open door to open conversation. Okay, an open door to open conversation. And so, for years, I think we bash Hollywood. You're doing this. You're doing this. You're doing this. And when they try to do something different. We bash them because they didn't get it exactly right. Of course, an atheist is not going to get the story of Noah right. And so my encouragement, instead of just, instead, and I don't think anybody in this room is, but instead of going, oh, this is the worst, blah, 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 use it to your advantage. Use it to your advantage to open up conversation with someone and say, hey, what did you think about Noah? What did you think about this? And I would actually encourage you to go see it because you can point to certain things that, that Noah did bring about. You know what? God does not like sin. God judges sin. Now, he probably doesn't, I won't bust the plot, but he probably doesn't do it in certain ways that happen. But again, it opens up conversation. And so many, so many times I think us as Christians, we get in our little Christian bubble and we just, ah, we protest, we protest, we protest. Instead of going, hey, nice try. Let's talk about this. And let's, let's see, this is why that part means so much to me. This is why that part of redemption, why, why I actually hope that would be done right. And, 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 and so I, I would go about it that way. I guess that'd be my only um, suggestion. But use Noah as an opportunity to really um, reach out to your friends, reach out to those who have seen it. Um, there's another movie out, by the way, called God is Not Dead. I haven't seen Anybody seen that? Okay. By applause. Is it good? Okay. So I thought it was funny on, on Rotten Tomatoes. The critics, you know, everybody familiar with Rotten Tomatoes? If not, go look at it. Um, Rotten Tomatoes, they have like um, critics percentage, like the, the certain amount of percentage of critics like it and a certain amount of percentage of users like it. For Noah, I think it was like 87 or, or like 70, something like Love Noah and users is like down at the 20. <laughs> for for um, God is Not Dead, 
Critics hated it. Users love it. So it's just, it's, it's typical. So I would go out and see both movies, but use them as an opportunity um, to really maybe build bridges and, and talk with your neighbors, talk with your friends, um, talk with those relatives of yours that are probably atheists and agree with the director. Um, but, but again, also stand your ground. So make sure you understand that there are certain things, we'll talk about that next week, that, that definitely did not happen in there. And the one thing I do not want to happen is I do not want, all of a sudden we see all these biblical movies coming out. Have you noticed that? I don't want all of a sudden all these movies to be lumped together and Noah become an Avenger. Okay, I don't want um, Thor and all these other things and Noah, everybody go, oh, it's just all myth, which is typically what someone would say. There is truth, and so we want to definitely stand behind truth. So go see it. It, it, it is a cool movie, well acted. Um, just check out on the accuracy parts. So, all right, anything else? All right, thank you guys for coming. See you next Tuesday. Um, we'll talk more about that. And then Sunday, if you can have a shot, second service in the tent. We will have fans. It's going to be awesome.